Tonight I'd like to talk with you about living a whole life as practice. And it's one of the benefits of coming on a uh, residential retreat like this is that you get the experience of what it's like to be submerged in practice. And when you get um, many days in a row, you get a sense, yeah, there's responsibilities, you still get up, you have to get dressed and you have your work cut out for you. You take breaks for meals. But then it's sort of one day in and one day out. And in a way, all days of your life can be like this. It's just that the context changes. And if you're patient but steady, um, every day of your life can be one where you are intentionally cultivating beautiful qualities of heart and being patient while other activities of heart happen, but you don't reinforce them. And in that way, every day, every week, every month, you look back and you say, yeah, that was a month dedicated to practice, just like you do here. In some ways, you know, you can be dedicated, but the context is different. So I'd like to talk a little bit about what it's like to um, integrate these practices into daily life, into other contexts. And then what it's like to, what it's like to um, live a whole life uh, with these values, with these practices. When I was in my 20s, I first um, came on my, I came on my first nine-day retreat. And there was a closing circle. <clears throat> and when it finally came to me and I, was, I had all that rust in my voice and I was going to break silence for the first time, the first words out of my mouth was, why does anybody do this twice? <laughs> like, I don't, I, I really don't understand. Some of you said you've come back, and I, I don't understand why you would do that. <laughs> I really bow to the journey we've all took, but I cannot imagine doing this twice. And yet, about a year later, I was still looking for ways to, and, you know, deal with my crazy mind and some guidance more than what was available, easily available, and tried many things. But I look back on the retreat, I said, oh, God, it was really honest. It was a really a very honest experience. I wonder if I could try it again, but do it differently. And I tried it again, and I had a little more faith under my belt, a little more orientation to what retreat life was like. I had more realistic expectations. It wasn't going to be enlightenment with bolts of lightning and <laughs> levitation on day three. And so I was open to it, just not expecting it. <laughs> and then I saw that um, there was something very trustworthy about retreat space, but I would kind of lose contact with it in daily life. And then I discovered little things like finding uh, other people interested in the practice and ways to stay connected between retreats, but I was still very retreat focused. And what we didn't have so much back then were so many ways to connect to the Dharma between retreats. And that's actually out there now. And there are many ways to stay connected. We'll talk some about that uh, tomorrow for more practical means. But um, I got very hungry for tasting the possibilities on the intensity of retreat and then feeling like it dissipated back home. Uh, <clears throat> and for that, slowly led to the strong appetite of saying, okay, I'm willing to ordain. I'm willing to live and make sure every day is dedicated. And I did that for a year. And it was lovely to have that entire year, year and a half almost, um, where I was expected to 
to live these practices to a very high bar. I mean, really very dedicated every day and have the outside circumstances hold me to these practices and these values. So I really appreciated that. But that was not, didn't end up being a full life choice. And so at some point I had to leave those circumstances. And as I was leaving the monastery, um, there were three Sri Lankan monks in this monastery that I really loved. And there was a, an elder and two youngers. And the youngers were, st- were still 50, so they weren't super young, but there was a much older monk there. And the two younger ones tried to talk me into staying, and they tried everything. So from their point of view, it was a very scary thing I was about to do to disrobe. And they said, oh, talk to our elder, and he'll really give you much clearer advice. And when I talked to him, he said, don't take off the robe covering your heart. Doesn't matter what clothes you wear. Keep the robe on your heart. And that was kind of what I was intending to do, but I wasn't sure if I was making the right choice. But it made no sense to take the robe off my heart. But that context didn't work for me, being a monk, for many reasons. It worked for a year, but uh, not much longer. And so I still feel like I have the, a monk's heart. But not just a monk's heart with the training and expectations, but still the clear compass heading that I had when I was ordained made no sense to put that aside because that was very beautiful, the intention. Um, and so the one thing I kept from that time is this robe here. This was the robe I wore when it was cold in Burma. Try not to be attached to it. <laughs> it isn't, it isn't, it's impermanent, and yet it's probably the oldest thing I own, <laughs> the 17-year-old relationship. Um, but the keeping my heart ordained, um, that's, that's been true, because that doesn't make any sense to leave that. But it's just a matter of what, does, what makes sense in this context. And a lot of contexts, you have to figure out what makes sense you know, out in your everyday life. And here there's a, there's a kind of a container, which is nice, and you can come back and there's a kind of a place you can return to. But your life also has patterns. And the ones that are beautiful, you keep and you do them consciously. And the ones that aren't, you learn how to do it some other way if you can. And so each day of your life still can be a day on retreat. It's just a different context. And that's what we forget. And a lot of messaging we get from our contemporary North American culture, the predominant one, doesn't remind us to be mindful, doesn't remind us to be compassionate necessarily. There's a sort of very skilled um, industry out there to give us mixed messages or counter messages. So it's really up to us to really stay dedicated and to remember to return if we find that we've drifted off the path to take our step back on. And you've done that many times when your mind's wandered, you brought it back. And it's just a larger scale thing. If you find that you've gotten a little far from the path, you bring yourself back. And you can do that in many ways. We'll talk about that tomorrow. Every year I go back to Burma um, for the last six years. And I love going back personally. And I like taking students that really want to see Burma and the first question most people ask me is how, which monasteries do we go to and how long do we stay in them? That's a kind of a natural question, but it still reflects our kind of young relationship to the Dharma, that we're monastery focused. And the Burmese aren't monastery focused. 
most of them know the monasteries and know the inside of monasteries, but most of them don't practice intensively in monasteries, um, you know, for years on end or months on end. Most of them, their practice is very devout, but it's in the midst of their everyday life. And so when I take people over to Burma, I really want to show them a more integrated model of the Dharma that's not, um, you know, Western culture and then retreat life and this huge dichotomy, but the integration of village life, city life, um, and the contemplative life and how those two blend back and forth. I thought I would just, just describe that a little bit because I, it's where we're going to head if we love these practices. We'll be much more integrated. So in this one town of Bagan where I go, um, a thousand years ago, um, this one king fell in love with this school of Buddhism, Theravadan Buddhism, and his whole kingdom converted overnight. Um, and they built 4,000 beautiful monuments to the heights of human consciousness. And so if you ever get a chance to go, it's so beautiful to see that upswelling of interest in the Dharma. And our culture is actually having an upswelling of interest in the Dharma too. Mindfulness has been on the cover of um, a lot of popular magazines and waiting for Metta to be (laughs) on the cover or Karuna, let's go for compassion. (laughs) But mindfulness is sweeping, it it is. And a lot of people want it and a lot of people need it. So it's kind of fun to see that that's happening to our culture as well. But when we go to this one town of Bagan, we visit this one monastery, and it's such a great example because um, this one mon- we go to two different monasteries uh, in two different places in Burma, but this one place is where the young boys go. So all the village uh, boys at some point will spend time in this monastery, and they learn how to be decent young men. And that's really the job of this monastery to install um, or to help them wake up to their inner dignity. And they teach them many things, how to chant uh, the suttas, um, how to meditate. <clears throat> they also teach them hygiene. <laughs> um, I have a friend who said he heard this long, fiery, passionate discourse from this Burmese teacher to the other one. Um, and when he finally asked somebody, what was that about? It's clean the bathroom after you use it. (laughs) So the boys are getting kind of like a (laughs) on that day. So they they grow up in this in this village. They'll spend time in this monastery, and then every morning, they dress up, and they carry this bowl, and they walk through the village that they just left. So they don't leave the village. Every day they walk back through their village. And their aunts, their uncles, their parents, their grandparents, their great aunts, great uncles, their cousins, um, put food in their bowl and acknowledge their dignity. And so it's this beautiful relationship that the, the monastery takes on the young people, trains them some, they walk through, they know what that's like, and then they go back into the village and they usually take up their family's industry. And then maybe when later on in life or for vacations or if before they get married, they might go back into the monastery for a certain amount of time. And so they keep going back and forth, but you don't go to the monastery and unplug so much in Burma. Um, almost every day you walk back out and then walk back in. And then villagers don't have you know, TVs. They don't have a huge ent- entertainment complex. So what they do is they w- will walk over to the monastery and hear talks and they'll practice meditation 
And so all day long there's this flow back and forth and it's not really understood yet that that's, um, you want that permeability um, for the integration of the practices. And that's what I want people to see when I take them over to Burma is to get a sense that over a thousand years the Dharma has become incredibly integrated uh, in this way. There's a young, there's a, not a young man, a, a family man who runs a, um, a restaurant in Burma. And he always helps us. He, he's so passionate for the Dharma that uh, when we get there, and he loves helping, um, especially spirit rock people <laughs> coming over to Burma because he knows that the people are coming over are dedicated to practices. And so he helps us interface with the monasteries and you know, it helps us with all the kind of the fine-tuned etiquette which is hard to do. But he's such a beautiful, humble man. Everybody that works for him, he takes an interest in their spiritual development. And he's really gentle and patient. But everybody who works for him, his restaurant is his monastery. And he has this one com- computer place where people can use the internet. And if you stay late enough, you see all the computers shut down, you see the whole restaurant closed down, and you see his family walk into that little studio roll out the mats and they sleep there and they wake up. And so the restaurant is his monastery, is his home. And there's no separation for him. Um, and it feels that a lot in Burma. That's where we're headed, I'm sure of it, because we'll, we want it. And so it's just a matter of wanting it and building that um, capacity to be mindful and present and kind and making sure that every day does feel like it's aligning with our values. So that will happen. It took them, I don't know if it took them a thousand years, but uh, they've been at it for a thousand years. So they got a bit of a head start. The training that we do in our tradition here, the Theravada tradition, and really a lot of forms of Buddhism will say that there, there are three types of training that we do. One is improving our understanding of really what is a wise way to live What's a wise way to understand um, this life and how to actually do it in a way where you suffer less? I'll let Tija take care of that. Um, wise understanding is one of the trainings. And you get there through um, reading, through discussion, through practice and understanding. And it's about volume. How is the volume? I'll ask other people in the back row. Okay. Yeah. A little more. Okay. Probably should have started with that. So wise understanding. You know, you can read about it, and you can um, get an intellectual understanding early on. But it's only through actually experiencing it that you can grow a real understanding of what this human life is about. And that comes from some understanding that you can get from others, but then um, paying attention in your own life and then building a better and better understanding so that you're actually living with more perspective, more understanding than you might have a year ago or five years ago. So building your understanding of how to live a wise life. The second training is in the realm of meditation where we're developing beautiful capacities of heart and mind. So developing calm, developing kindness, developing compassion, developing mudita, this empathetic joy. All these are beautiful aspects that are natural to a human heart, 
but we don't necessarily go to the gym and work out these beautiful qualities like we might otherwise work out our physical body. Can we work out our emotional and mental qualities so that they become stronger and have greater capacity? And that's the third training. It's not necessarily wisdom training, but capacity building, emotional, mental capacity building. And the third training is in the area of our actions and our conduct and making sure that the, the wisdom and these beautiful qualities actually end up um, influencing and guiding how we act in the world. And so early on we took in the retreat, uh, we took the precepts. So that's one way that we practice um, beautiful conduct in the world, making sure that we're not causing harm, but we're also living in a way that benefits ourselves and others and making sure that it's actually happening. It's not just a good thought, but you actually follow that out. Um, maybe not everyone, but many of them. So you're putting those beautiful aspects of heart and mind and your wise perspective into action. So those are considered the three categories of training, wise understanding, building heart capacities, heart and mind capacities, and then really developing beautiful conduct in the world. How do you speak? How do you act? How are you making your way in the world? And is it reflective of your values? Those are the three trainings. In Burma, again, one of the things I learned over there by being a monk, but also just being in the country, is that people don't wait for the monastery to practice. And many of them don't think that um, they can't practice until they get to the monastery. Their daily life is their practice. And that's one of the things that we have to build here. Many of us who are maybe uh, converting to this or, ten, or trying it out if you don't want to be a convert. <laughs> but if, you're, if you love it and you want to kind of explore it, if you didn't grow up with it, then you have to kind of develop a capacity. And maybe some people did in their family. Maybe their family um, was already Buddhist and they may or may not practice. It may be culturally Buddhist, but are they actually um, doing these particular practices and trainings? So that's something we all take up. In the, um, the discourse that Spring handed out um, on the first day, the, Karani, the Karaniya Metta Sutta, some, someone asked what, um, what sutta it was. It's the one that begins, this is what should be done by one who is skilled in goodness. And it actually is a chant that people chant. Um, it's from a part of the canon called the Sutta Nipata 1.8, for those of you who like reading suttas. This particular discourse is something that many um, Burmese people have memorized, both in Pali and in Burmese, and something that they chant because they consider it really auspicious to chant it when they go to pagodas and holy places. And they also uh, just love the discourse, so they find opportunity to chant it. And then we've, <clears throat> we're playing with different ways to um, translate this into English to really get both the, the accuracy but also the heart quality of the discourse. And so this is, this is probably one of the better translations that captures both. Um, and it comes from the Western Ajahn Chah tradition, this Thai tradition. And they've sort of gone through this and um, tried their best to capture both the, the poetic quality and the accuracy. And it begins, this is what should be done 
by one who is skilled in goodness and who knows the path of peace. That, that uh, second phrase there, skilled in goodness, is something that's been reverberating. I've known this discourse for a while, and it's really interesting. I can read it, and certain lines pop out. And when they pop out, it tends to kind of be something that I'm curious about. And there I see it reflected, and I might have read it many times, but then a different part of it will jump out. So this phrase to be skilled in goodness. I know good people, and I'm often a good person myself. <laughs> and so when the goodness is there, it kind of, it's flowing, and then it flows, and then it, you know, becomes less good. <laughs> and I get tired or something like that. But to be skilled in goodness is a whole training. What does it mean to be skilled in goodness? And that's really where you can look at these three trainings and look at this practice of loving kindness and reflect when you go home or any, any day of your life, can you be developing the skills of being a good person? There's what you already have, but you're not fixed at that level of skill. You can actually develop the skills of goodness. Of goodness. You've become wiser about the play of goodness. You can develop these beautiful qualities of heart so that they're stronger. And then you can actually look at your actions and make sure your actions are more skillful, that there's more understanding behind your actions and that you've learned how to actually have a good intention and have it actually land um, out in the world. So this, I've read this many times and this as I was reading it um, earlier on in the retreat and then again tonight, this one phrase is coming out to me, what does it mean to be skilled in goodness? And it is a skill to be good. You can just be good but you can actually, with some skill, get better at being good. So, <laughs> you know, my family has had very dug-in dynamics for a long time. And every time I am a little more free, I have a little more understanding. I'm not as, as dragged into family dynamics, nor do I have to stay out of them in order to be free. But more and more actually can participate within my family dynamics because I've changed. I can be actually more skillful in how my family dynamics play out. So I can see some of the unskillful patterns and I can tell like, let's not go there. I think we go there a lot. Let's try something else. So, you know, particular people in my family have a way of getting in trouble with each other and sort of running very old patterns, very old fights. And I know how to talk them out of it. And if I'm feeling generous, <laughs> I'll spend the time to really talk them out and not let them brew old stories, these old understandings, you know, between my parents and my siblings, or between my siblings or between my parents. It's like getting in there, and there actually is a skill to it. If I'm too pushy, they tend to get defensive. If I'm not pushy enough, they tend to do what they're gonna do anyhow. <laughs> and so actually there is a dance in there, and I have to kind of wait till I'm in the right mood so my intervention is actually skillful and so I have to have the right understanding I have to check my heart to make sure my heart has capacity for the intervention I'm about to try and then I've learned about each one of the characters in my family what triggers them a style of interacting with them and over many decades now um, I'm starting to have a really good impact on my family and they actually reflect back like yeah that was really helpful and that wasn't always so because family dynamics are so powerful. I was usually just trying to save myself and not get sucked down into them. 
and then getting frustrated and like and not being so skillful in goodness like being more condemning or more kind of like i walking away because i can't take it but as i have more capacity of patience more capacity of kindness i understand that they're stuck in places and the change is going to come slow and when i hold all that together i actually can have a really beautiful impact on my family dynamics families suffer people suffer can we be skilled in how we how we interface with the suffering in the world can we be skilled in our goodness do we understand how to actually participate with others in a way that actually improves upon what's happening for a while i worked for the buddhist peace fellowship and one of the great things about the buddhist peace fellowship is that every day they were trying to understand how to be impactful in the world not just personally good people but how to look at systems of suffering and see if we could make an impact and it took a lot of people trying to how do we do that how do we actually have impact how do we have impact on environmental destruction and recovery and healing and how do we have impact on some of the social structures some of the harm that's caused by these really powerful confusions of racism and sexism classism the isms how do we have impact on some of the structural pieces around uh, the military or about advertising or about the way that um, poor people are te- are not treated well how do we actually get in there and make a difference and so i just blessed to walk, walk in there as a uh, 30 year old and be around people who've been doing it for 30 years my entire life they've been really studying what are these systems of oppression and how do we get in there how do we be skilled at goodness we're good people but how do we really understand what's happening that's kind of fun because <clears throat> here on silent retreat we're doing one part of a cycle which is sort of unplugging settling down and getting reoriented building capacity but it's really fun to then take this capacity and then impact the world with it that's what drew me to buddhism early on is that i was actually raised by um my parents <laughs> but one of my parents my dad um is a really fiery marxist and he got really impassioned about uh, liberal politics in the 60s and 70s and so when i was growing up just he was a professor in a university and he just there was so much um talk around the table and his friends were over about all these social structures that were causing harm and so i had that early on in life but didn't know how to do it and as i described going to the nuclear test site i had all i had a lot of revving understanding but no understanding of how to do it i just this is a problem but i don't really know i don't know how to have impact through anger or pushing back like how do we push back and then seeing those two quaker women showed another way i'd never seen and definitely the angry marxists that i knew up knew growing up did not have the uh, kind quaker way of having an impact so i think both are needed um for sure but i don't think um the angry marxists that i knew growing up were very skilled in goodness they were skilled at analysis but they weren't necessarily very good at um that the ones that i knew weren't really skilled at impact actually creating something new um they were passionate about it but they had good understanding just not understanding of how to have the outcome they wanted or how to cultivate that. 
So one of the things that um, I've seen about um, growing up in this predominant North, North American culture is that there, there isn't the, the, the great possibilities of the human heart are not, um, are not believed in. At least I didn't grow up having access to the belief of the boundless capacity of love that was possible in my heart um, or the wisdom or the calm that was possible. And so when I first started coming to these practices, I would hear teachers say things that just were very foreign, you know, like um, rest in this, in this purity inside. I was like, it's not pure inside. <laughs> and after a couple of years, I, you may be talking about something else because mostly when I rest inside, it hurts. Like it's complicated down there. You know, or this boundless capacity of patience and love. It's like, yeah, uh, that's not me. That's not my heart. And what I've seen <clears throat> over time is that I use this analogy. My mind works in analogies. It's how, like, when I really understand, understand something for myself, suddenly this analogy comes to mind and it holds a lot of information for me. So I'll share a few with you. So um, I lived in the hate in San Francisco, Haight-Ashbury um, area. And right when you've waited for summer and it to be hot and luxuriously warm and beautiful, that tends to be when it's covered with this fog and it's about 50 degrees with the wind blowing, being sucked in by the hot air inland. And so you've waited and waited and waited for summer and then you get this blanket of fog. And I used to walk out and I was like, the sun should be there. I know it's there. Physics tells me it should be there. But I just, I've lost faith. <laughs> it feels like the sun's abandoned us because it's so cold. And every now and then, like this little orange disc would start to show up but then a big wave of fog would come and take it out. I'm like, okay, that's all we get today. That's a bit of what it felt like <clears throat> um, when people are talking about this beautiful capacity of heart. It's like, my heart, every now and then I see what you're talking about, but mostly I get this cold fog. <laughs> and every now and then it's sunny, but it's so random. I don't know how to actually develop that. And what I've seen is that if I actually do know where the sun should be, and I do believe in it, somehow it helps the fog burn out. Not, that never happened in San Francisco, but it happens <laughs> in Dharma practice. And that's what, uh, that's what the metta practice is, is that you point your heart where the sun should be. It really should be with kittens, cats, children, but there's a lot of cold fog and it's like I sometimes break through and sometimes I can't, sometimes break through and sometimes I can't. But you stay with that and then your small part makes that first connection. And then through that, this sun begins to pour out. And the sun that's pouring out of this heart um, is much bigger than the effort I put in. But I had to put in the effort. And so it's, it's not that you end up constructing this great love out of your effort. It's that you, will, you stop blocking it. And over time, as you stop blocking it, it begins to shine quite beautifully. And then the great thing about the sun is that it doesn't discriminate, it doesn't shine more on people it prefers. It just very evenly shines. And that's what this uh, great capacity of heart, and it's in all of you. It really is in all of you. And it's, it's the outcome of practicing is that finally the heart begins to break through 
often what are egoic safety patterns and learning to relax them so that the heart can actually pour through. And it's fast, it's boundless. And it then doesn't begin to discriminate in terms of who deserves love. But it does know that this person deserves, this is skillful love with this person and this is skillful love with that person. So there is some skill, but nobody is without it. You can actually find love uh, in greater and greater capacity for more and more beings. And at times you really do understand how um, all beings would be benevolent in the world. It's usually due to circumstances of how they grew up that their heart isn't a big radiant sun. And so that's how often I'll see if someone's heart isn't a big radiant sun, chances are there's a story behind that. I first understood that through another analogy. <laughs> and when I was living in the, the mission in San Francisco, there was this really ferocious dog that lived right next to us. I and mean, every time I walked home, this dog would sometimes bite the fence. It was so angry. It would bite this metal fence, just like, this is what I want to do to you. I want to do this to you. I just was so frustrated. I can't get at you. So I'm going to actually bite the metal fence. I'm like, ah! And I really love dogs, and so I'm going to win this dog over. This, this dog has met his match because I'm just steadily going to love this dog, steadily going to love this. I'm going to feed this dog. I'm going to love it, love it, love it. After a couple of years, it just bit the fence and was frustrated and was confused by my attempt to love it. So it would get more angry and it would get more, I was like, oh, I'm actually making you suffer more by trying to love you because you're so confused by it all. I think I got to kind of like just love you and walk on and something else might happen. But, but what I know about that dog, because I know dogs well, no dog is born that angry. They are just not, that dog had to be trained to be that angry. There's no, dogs are, just don't have it in them. They're really malleable and they really want to do the right thing. And so if the right thing is trained to be aggressive and attack and suspicious, they will do that. And if you, you can take, I'm sure you can take any dog at birth and train it to be a complete, you know, lover and tail wagger and a big jello hearty dog that just, <laughs> just loves and loves and loves, if that's its experience. And that's, you know, a lot of dogs are privileged enough in this, in, uh, to have that experience, but a lot aren't. And so when I see this dog, <clears throat> I know there's a history behind why after years, literally years, of trying to care for it and show it I'm, I mean no harm, it can't be won over. So it's just like, ah. And that tells me that dog needs to be behind the fence. That the love I have for that dog is not like, oh, I'm going to love you and therefore be unwise and let you at my body. <laughs> it's like, I'm, that's, that wouldn't be wise for you or me. So do the conditions that you're in um, and the conditions of your past. I'm going to love you, but I also need to protect other people and innocence from the amount of anger that's going through you. And I use that analogy when I understand complicated people and people that are really difficult I know every person was an infant. I know every person was a newborn. And by the time you're running as much defensiveness or hate or you're participating in systems that cause suffering, that's after the fact. That's not intrinsic. That's trained. And I know it can be untrained. And yet the time, the lag between untraining it and its existence, it does need to be checked. 
So you do need to check it, but you don't have to check it out of hating that individual. You need to check it with wisdom. But you actually, like I can do with that dog, I love it and need, actually was glad it had a big fence it could bite and not get through. And that's, it kind of touches the question earlier, what to do about people um, that, that you know are causing harm. They do need to be stopped. And you can use the power of love and compassion to do that. And you don't have to waver on that. Love wouldn't make you waver. It'd be clear, you're causing harm and you need to be stopped because you're causing harm. But I don't have to do that through, um, by trying to find power through my own hatred, my own impatience, because that, that's a toxic energy to do that. That's taken me a long time to do that. I can't always do it, but I have growing capacity to do that. And I also want to add that as a, a very privileged person in North America, because I'm white, I'm male, heterosexual, the, I, I don't often, I receive personal sufferings because that's the human experience, but I'm not also receiving a huge wave of all the, uh, the structural um, pain that's out there. So for me to talk about patience, and for me to talk about loving my enemy, you know, it, it's a different caliber, but it's the same direction. If you see um, that beautiful movie that just came out in the last year, uh, Selma, when you look at what was motivating uh, Dr. King and the other people that walked with him, they were sure that their movement had to be based in love. And that's what kept it beautiful. And that's what kept it a positive force. But they weren't passive. Love actually encouraged them and supported them so they could be in direct action. I want to bring that up because that's actually some of the possibility of what we get to explore when we get to go deep into a retreat like this and then a retreat has a beginning so it has an ending. And then we go home. There'll be many opportunities to do personal loving kindness in your immediate environment. And that's, that's a lot of what you'll do is sort of, can you be present with this one person in front of you? Can you be present while you're driving or walking? You know, it's often very personal. But we're also all participating in a larger experience, in a larger culture. And that culture harms many people on many levels. And so opening our heart and our understanding to these larger systems and seeing if you are participating or supporting consciously or unconsciously harm on a large scale. And how do we think differently? How do we go about it differently? That's one of the things that can grow out of this practice. It's been very personal. You know, you're sitting there, you're connecting, you're connecting where it's easy to yourself, to neutral people. But when you start to get to neutral people, that's a broader category. Then you start to get to all beings like today. How do we have kindness and skillful kindness for all beings? It's one thing to sit here and kind of wish it, but it won't actually manifest, it won't become conduct unless we do something about it. And that's maybe one um, unfair but close critique of Buddhists is that they are not as passionately active as maybe other spiritual traditions. And so we don't want to have that default, which is why we don't want to be monastery focused. We don't want to be retreat center focused. For some people, that's your temperament and that's your gift that you actually like doing this. But if this is something you do, but you have a full life other than being on retreat, be passionate about it. 
let these understand how these practices can develop in those contexts and be passionate right in your ordinary life, you know, in the work you do and in your family life, your community life. But there's also ways to participate in larger scale movements. And we've mentioned that in many ways, all of us, that to, to love this planet and not do something about it doesn't make sense. We often don't know what to do, but we, can, we should all be doing something. And so as this retreat can be a part of that. That's one thing that um, I discovered in my 20s as I was working in this shelter for homeless teenagers. I mentioned that. And just when I would start to burn out and I couldn't handle one more teenager coming in with one more outrageous story of how they've been treated, I would go on a retreat like this and I would empty out and I'd renew and I'd refresh so I could go back in and plug in. And that's where I wanted to plug in around uh, issues of homelessness and working with young people. I also wanted to plug in on environmental issues. Wherever you want to plug in and however you want to plug in, it's fine. And don't feel like you should plug in because that's not really the way to plug in. But what you care about, do something about it and that becomes a part of the path. It's not all about unplugging like we do on retreat. How do you want to? What do you want to invest in? What type of conduct? How do you want to be in the world? What do you want to caretake? Become caretakers of the planet in your way. In your way, only you know what that is. You can't let somebody else dictate that. So as your hearts clean up and the sun comes out in your, inside of you, you'll care. And please act on that caring. That's what we do as lay people. But for people who are, their temperament is to be more in the monastery. You know, some people will spend 30 years in solitude. We need them too, because they're mapping out another part of the equation, really trying to understand this human mind and where it gets caught and how to teach people who are going to be active tools so that you don't burn out. We all will work together. Joanna Macy, who is um, a really beloved teacher and one of the um, one of the people who has helped so much to bring a very passionate, dynamic, beautiful understanding of Buddhist practice into um, North America. She talks about <clears throat> three ways of serving the planet. One is to do direct actions of service or healing, blocking harmful actions. Um, working on legislation that um, helps us um, work together collectively so we don't harm the planet, we don't harm ourselves, see if there's things we can do about harmful industries like the prison industrial complex or the military so that they don't cause harm or they cause less harm. That's a very active part of it. We also need people who can do structural analysis, who are really studying the problems to know what they're rooted in, so the interventions are not just working on the surface symptoms, but can get at the root of a cause. When I was working with the homeless kids, my temperament wanted to do direct service. But I would work with these people who were really trying to understand what the mayor and the governor um, and what the laws were to try to support this problem of homelessness. They were trying to do more structural intervention on homelessness. And my mind didn't work that way at that time, so I wouldn't have known how to help there. But I knew how to meet somebody at the door, welcome them in, um, get them 
fresh clothing and a healthy meal and help them calm down and feel safe. So I could play on the team, but that was my role. Other people were doing this more structural change. And the third thing that Joanna Macy says, we need a shift in consciousness. That's one of the reasons that we get caught at all is we don't have the strength of consciousness to deal with the troubles. And so we're often taking these shortcuts or we do things that um, don't truly align with our values because you don't have the strength of heart or the insight in how to go about our lives differently, how to reconstruct societies differently. Our society looks like our collective consciousness. We're doing our society. It's not, we're not passive players in it. And as we change, we change our part, our participation in the greater, um, the greater collective. And so the shift in consciousness we've all had by being here will impact the world. It cannot not impact the world. It will. And you'll get to see that very personally as you walk out of here and you're kinder to people, more patient, um, when you see all the small actions. <clears throat> but there's a sort of a, also a glow about people who have been on retreats. Even if you feel like this retreat did not work for you, and you was like, sorry, no glow over here. Like, you all are glowing? And nah, there's no glow here. Sorry, I've got nothing to offer the world but this sort of soggy, you know, half burnt, half raw heart. I'm like, uh, I promise you, you're glowing more than you realize. <laughs> and other people will pick that up. And then you'll be like those two Quaker women doing your personal path, but inspiring people on either side of you who get a hit off of you that there's something patient the way that you interacted with a stranger, the way you interacted with them, it will, it will change them. I've taken up this uh, habit that I love very much. Um, it just came to me one day, um, I was walking into a store and um, I just got to the door before these uh, two um, older women and I opened it for them and they walked in and they said, thank you. And it just came, I was like, for you, the world, and they stumbled a little bit. And they're like, whoa, oh, th thank you, thank you. And I was like, oh my God, that was so delicious. I'm going to always do that. <laughs> and so now an almost any time somebody thanks me, I say, for you, the world. And people will take a double take, like, oh my God, that's so generous. And it's like, <laughs> like yeah. I mean, I don't actually have the world to give. <laughs> so, <clears throat> but if I had it, it would be yours. And so then I say, you know, it comes with two conditions. You have to share it and kind of leave it as it is, but then it gets complicated. So, <laughs> But just in that first layer, um, for you, the world, and what it does is it actually gives a voice to what my heart actually feels. When I, when I am kind to people and they smile, it's nice. But if someone actually turns and thanks me, it's a beautiful moment. And so my heart glows a little bit and it wants to participate. It wants to do something other than smile back. And so then I say, for you, the world. I've only had a few people say, I thought you meant me particularly. <laughs> and I heard you to somebody else and I was like, oh, that's just a thing you do. It's like, well, it's not just a thing I do. I actually meant it. But I mean it for a lot of people. So, <laughs> so it, it's, people are complicated. <laughs> so. Anyways, for you all, the world. Mm -hmm. 
And <clears throat> that's a personal, individual exchange. But it also is a different thing. I'm a stranger. But I'm holding them with great, with much greater fondness than we hold strangers. And it shocks them. And it shocks them in the right direction. One thing I love about, again, going to Burma, um, that I got really high on and have to kind of watch my addiction to is that when I walk around in Burma, um, I'll look people in the eye, they'll look for a second, and then they'll smile with their whole body. I don't know how they do it, but like they get these meta high beams. It's like, I'm just walking down the street and I'm just like, whoa, wow, that's bright. Wow, that's bright. Wow, wow, that's really bright. And I was walking around, just like looking people in the eye and smiling and they're, they're like, Oh, a foreigner walking through, like, wow, he's really kind. And they smile back, and they're like, wow, he smiles a lot. And so I do that in Burma, and then I was like, I'm going to do this when I go home. I'm going to do this when I go home. I'm going to do this when I go home. And I get on BART, and I'm, <coughs> and I'm looking around, and I'm smiling at people, and they're like, mm, you know. <laughs> yeah, this guy's smiling at me. It's, just, <laughs> it's a little unnerving. <laughs> I was like, I'm going to win them over. You're like, why, why don't we look at each other and smile? But then I realized it's like the dog. You know, it's like not making them comfortable. <laughs> it's making them uncomfortable. So I kind of get out of the habit. Um, but it's something I love very much when I travel. And I can do it uh, often in other countries more here. something about um, what, what's common and what's acceptable. But there's no fundamental truth behind it. It's just custom. And we are really malleable. We are surprisingly malleable. The habits that we have are not intrinsic. They're just default settings. And we all kind of go, okay, if you won't smile at me, I'll stop smiling at you. Okay. Then I, after a while, I'm picking up the cultural norms, which has people get uncomfortable if you look them in the eye and smile if they're strangers, except in certain contexts. And I find them and then I celebrate. For you, the world. <laughs> there was a <clears throat> there was a really profound thing that happened in the Tibetan community. Um, one of their um, notable young teachers, this teacher named uh, Mingyur Rinpoche, he announced that he wanted to do a, a private three-year retreat, and he said it's coming, so prepare. And then he uh, he let people prepare and. They were kind of expecting him, I guess, to do something kind of standard, like we know what that kind of means, that he's going to do this silent retreat. He'll probably pick a location, and then we can still serve him if he does this. And just as people got prepared enough, he left a note saying, I'll be back in three years, or something like that, and just walked away. He didn't tell his brother where he was going, and he just disappeared. And he's just come out of that three-year experience, and he was in India on the streets. He went up to the Himalayas sometimes, I think. But he went sort of incognito for three years. And uh, what's that? Four years. Four years. Yeah. And he sort of just reemerged and he's telling some of the stories. And he almost died a few times from food poisoning and um, had a really hard time of it. That's beautiful. I mean, just who does that? That's amazing that he did that. But it's in our tradition, you know, sort of the, the sort of caring about solitary practice and being really loyal to it 
And he knew that if he didn't completely go incognito, he would not get the type of solitude he was looking for. He's too famous and people would want to see him and they'd have business. And they wouldn't give him three or four years of, sol of solitude. So he just walked for and slept on the street. He owned nothing. So it's a beautiful story, but one of the, th one of the things that he said in this short interview is that he learned a lot and he understood a lot, but for him, one of the most important lessons of those three to four years he was out on the street doing his practice is that his, it had to translate into conduct. It really had to become actionable. His free heart had to become, a, a, it had to uh, impact his actions. And so while we've been practicing here, we've really asked you all to support each other by being on retreat together. And none of us could do, have done this alone. Really, even people up here probably would have had a hard time doing it alone. We've done it, but we've asked you not to engage with each other so that each one of you could explore solitude while having the support of the community around you. But that's not the norm, and that's not how we want you to live. We actually want you to explore skillful goodness. And skillful goodness does have a way of dropping back, giving people their space, you yourself dropping back and giving yourself space. But then what you get to learn is what skillful engagement, what does that look like? Are you paying attention to the person you're talking to? Are you caring about the person you're talking to? Is it become more of a rote habit or is it actually something that your heart wants to do? Is your speech connected to your heart? Are your actions connected to your heart? What you're doing, what you're doing with your day, how much of it is connected to your heart. That's a whole part of our practice. And it's something that we, if again, the way we train here doesn't strengthen that necessarily because so much of what we need to do is unplug from our habits and sit here and learn to be calm and not agitate ourselves. But that's not the high bar of where we all should be headed. That's an experience, it's a training, it does beautiful things. For some people, they wanna do much more of that training. But eventually you have to plug in, back in. And that's a great thing, to be able to explore beautiful action, to be able to explore beautiful ways of being in the world, through physical action, through the way you communicate, the way you talk to others, the way you receive other people, the way you interact. And one of the beautiful things about doing a submersion, submersion program like this for these six days, is that you're gonna have a type of momentum and you're gonna see what it's like to walk through the world with a lot more loving kindness flowing through you. And it will shock you in ways that you can't anticipate what this retreat will really have done. And you can't measure the retreat on the retreat. We all try to, and there's some measurement that can be done, but you really can't. What will be interesting to see is how the 90 plus people in this room all go back out into our world and what we do with this practice and how we keep practicing. Because otherwise, we'll just kind of go into a marginal awakeness, but kind of an unconsciousness. So there's really no reason that your life has to uh, diminish in your connection to the practice if you approach life with the same vigor and the same intentionality that you've done here. And that's totally doable just takes that kind of reminder and then feeding your own uh, motivation so you can take these practices home as you want to 
whatever you've learned here, whatever you've valued, but you have to keep it going. You have to kind of keep loving it. Yeah, that's probably enough for tonight. <laughs> Let's uh, sit together for a moment. Let the word settle some. those were a lot of words maybe about the future and about things and people that are not here. I'd like to leave you with this one uh, teaching from a beautiful Vietnamese monk named Thich Nhat Hanh and something that I turn to a lot to guide me. And he said the best way to take care of the future is to take care of the present moment because when the future comes, it will be a bunch of present moments. So take any inspiration you have and the time remaining on this retreat to again, be loyal and dedicated to the moment you're in, this moment now, the flow of these immediate experiences. And then the going home in the days after, you don't need to worry so much about them when they come, they will also be a present time experience. And unless you're really tired, I encourage you to enjoy the walking and come back for the victory lap practice in the evening with some sitting and chanting together and uh, feeling the circle uh, a little further into the evening. But if you need to take a break, then you, you've well earned it. <laughs> 